Well, um, if you follow me on Instagram, as some of you do, I, I, I basically it's basically a bike blog for me. I, I don't post anything on Instagram uh, other than bike stuff. So if you follow me on Instagram and that's, you're tired of seeing my bike stuff, you can stop. You can unfollow me. That's fine, too. I went on a 100-mile like bike ride yesterday, and I, I did one of those. Well, I didn't really do an Instagram story. Some of my friends, and it's just like bike... If you really want to geek out on what it's like to be a cyclist, then look at my Instagram story from yesterday, and you're like, that's kind of weird. But um, I like bikes, so that's it. And it's not that I won't... I used to, I was, I, it's not that I won't... I follow some of you that don't bike. It's not that I won't follow anybody else. I used to follow a couple of dogs, um, a friends of mine, on their Instagram profiles. And then I realized I don't really like... I don't really care about things dogs care about, so I stopped following them. So those poor puppies. Anyway... Uh, so I follow athletes or cyclists, and this hashtag came up in my Instagram kind of feed this week through, I think, a mutual friend um, that I kept seeing pop up, and it's this hashtag, I was curious about it, Brave Like Gabe. And so uh, it's this name of this foundation, some of you know about, uh, that's raising money for research into rare cancers, encouraging cancer patients to exercise and to um, use exercise as a form of therapy. And it was started by a woman named Gabrielle Grunewald until this past week, Tuesday. Uh, she was one of our country's elite distance runners. Um, and she died this week at 32 from um, a really rare form of cancer. And after her death, as I'm reading about her story on Instagram and just New York Times, I read her obituary, just really fascinating story of courage and resilience. Um, I came across something her husband wrote on Instagram as well. I just started checking his Instagram profile out. So I'll pull this up. Instagram. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't care about Instagram. Um, and his name is Justin Grunewald, and uh, he wrote this little post on Instagram like on, earlier in the week. He, you know, he was kind of updating his community that she had, um, her, her, she, her status had really worsened since they moved her to comfort care, and she was going to die later in the week. And so letting people know like, if they needed to talk to her, to kind of um, do that in the next couple of days. But then he posted this letter um, that he wrote to her, really vulnerable moment. You know, it's been like like 25,000 times already, but uh, this letter he wrote to her a couple years earlier. And so I just wanted to read a part of this. It said, Dear Gabrielle, first, thank you. Thank you so much for showing me what it's like to be and feel alive. It's easy to pass through life day to day, punch a time card wishing away the hours. Currently, although I don't always show it, I cherish every second. Um, whether we're out running or binging on a new Netflix series or just trying or just lying in bed being lazy, nothing beats the feeling I get when I see your smiling face. Then he goes on, he says, I know life is scary. I know we have won the lottery of uncertainty. I love that phrase. And it's not fair, but I still choose our life of uncertainty and at times fear over any alternative option I could think of. Um, I know you've been given the heaviest of tasks in life, the task of being brave despite feeling enormous amounts of fear, the task of smiling when your throat wells up with pain and your eyes want to fill with tears. But I don't, this is key, I don't think you were chosen by random. And again, I know that's not fair, but you are so amazing at being you, and that's why I feel a brave like Gabe is so special, because there isn't a word in the dictionary for what you do or who you are. Brave flails in comparison to to what you are to me and to so many people out there who are facing the simplest and often overwhelming struggles in everyday life. And at the end of the day, he says, people won't remember your PRs or the teams qualified for. They will remember the hard period in their life when they were losing hope, but they found inspiration in a young woman who refused to give up.
powerful, right? um, And I'm sure you know this, that the most often repeated command in Scripture is do not be afraid. Do not fear. And we heard that three, I mean, I don't know if we heard it all, all those times in Ezekiel's call this morning, but God says again and again, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Put positively for Ezekiel, be brave. Despite feeling enormous amounts of fear, you know, uh, God describes us as scorpions and briars. Live with courage. And it's obviously not by accident. It's this very specific thing that God addresses because he knows what our greatest point of weakness is going to be. It's going to be fear. It's going to, fear is going to take us down. And we think of it as the enemy. Uh, fear is, is, often turn, our, is often our greatest point of turning from opportunity and the thing that would keep us from living the lives God created us for. Just fear. So over and over and over again, God invites us as his people to be brave, to, to, to stand with courage in the face of fear, which is, by the way, a calling that's not reserved for the super spiritual. You think of Ezekiel, he's a prophet. He's just like Gabby Grunewald. You know, she's just a young woman from Minneapolis, Minnesota, who could run really fast, but just a woman. Ezekiel was just a man, just a 30-something, just a man. He had a calling on his life. He'd been trained for the priesthood, which was this really a distinguished calling in that day, but he's just a young man. And he's, he's ready to take the next step in his calling, kind of move out into the world, leave his home and live out his dreams. And yet he finds himself deported with thousands of other Jewish exiles in Babylon sitting beside the Kibar River. His dreams of what, the way he thought he'd be living his life just shattered. His hopes to be this agent of expressing God's holiness and presence on earth just gone. He's not, that's not going to happen. Um, he's amongst all these other exiles who've now found themselves in this utterly foreign land that they viewed as godless and God-forsaken. That's where they are, living godless, God-forsaken lives. So he has every reason to be afraid, um, every reason to be distraught, every reason to give up. Like this is not, no, I'm not going to live. I'm not going to live. He's he's lost his home. He's lost his community. He's lost his dreams. He's lost that his life is going to produce any meaning. He's just lost. Have you, have you ever experienced loss or felt lost in your life? That's kind of the first presenting question to us. Like, have you experienced the destruction of your Jerusalem? Jerusalem's been annihilated by the Babylonians. It's in, it's in ruins. The great city of God. And that's significant because in that time, that's where God dwelled. <laughs> like, we talk about it in these abstract terms. That's where they believe God was, and now God's gone. There is no presence anymore. So are you like Ezekiel or, or, or Justin Grunewald? You've lost a loved one. You, too good for this world. You just, you're lost. It's not fair. Um, your dreams, the way you thought you'd be living your life, just shattered. You, know? you thought you'd, your kids would be doing this. You'd be doing this. You'd be living there, and none of that's happening. Um, see, friends, we are Ezekiel. And... Uh, there's things about him that are unique. We're going to look at those over the coming weeks. There's things about the story that are unique. But as we begin, I think the first word that I wanted to kind of remind us of is this word of invitation to not be afraid. All of us need to hear this. Whatever, whoever we are, whatever we do, be brave. I mean, though your call and your circumstances, your life might be overwhelming to you, all of us in this room, no matter our age, stage, are just being invited into that. Do not be afraid. So to that end, I, I, what I want to do through these first kind of moments with Ezekiel is kind of explore these ingredients that go into that call to courage. It's easy to say, easy to read an Instagram post, 
and sort of just go out and sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm not going to be afraid today. I'm going to face my boss. I'm going to face my spouse. I'm going to, I'm going to start again. I'm going to get into it, into the Word of God. But there's more to it than just that. And so Ezekiel's story actually brings some things out for us as we seek to be people of courage in the midst of this world of overwhelming circumstances. And here are three of them, okay? Uh, the first is we must be people empowered and animated by the Spirit of God. So this is in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And the second is we need to be obedient to the Word of God. So chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And then finally, we must stand in solidarity and empathy with the people of God. So animated by the Spirit of God, obedient to the Word of God, and then empathetic with the people of God. Okay? We'll look at those and then we'll respond together. So first, courage requires animation and empowerment by the Spirit of God. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I'll speak to you. And as God spoke, the Spirit came into him, raised him to his feet, and then he heard God speak. So note the order of this, really important. God tells Ezekiel to stand up, okay? And which is a posture of reverence in that culture, to stand before the holiness of God. So God can speak to him. You're not going to hear God unless you're standing. This is what Moses does, you know? Takes off his sandals, stands before God. And so, at, but it's, notice, it's as God's speaking, the Spirit fills Ezekiel and then stands Ezekiel on his feet. Ezekiel doesn't stand on his feet. Ezekiel doesn't have the ability to stand on his own. That's the point here. So the entry of the Spirit, it not only raises Ezekiel's his feet, if you read the story, uh, it hands the scroll to Ezekiel, causes him to eat it, strengthens Ezekiel to, to be as tough as his opponents, who are his own people, by the way, um, and when that's all over and done, the Spirit then lifts Ezekiel, we're going to look at this at the very end, and then deposits him, deposits him among the exiles where he just sits motionless for a week. So here's the deal. <laughs> here's the truth for us. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are powerless. I mean, and that has a few applications for our lives when it, when it comes to living in response to that call to courage. Here's the first. Living to God's call to courage is far easier than we think. We've made it a lot harder than it needs to be. There's books all about it and people who do conferences about how to be courageous. It's not that hard, (laughs) which is to say that God is not limited by my weakness or the weakness of my efforts. He's not limited by my sense of despair. He's not limited by my dumbfoundness. He's He's just not limited. If we could wrap our heads around that, the animating force behind each and every one of our callings, whether we're excited about that or not, whether we're sufficient, we feel sufficient or not, or just flat confused right now, is God. God can choose, he can work if he chooses to. <laughs> he, will, he will work because he chooses to, and he's going to work through you. So Jesus says this to the Pharisees. They're rebuking the followers of Jesus in the Gospels for getting out of hand. This is as Jesus is coming into the, the city, and they're so excited about Jesus. They're so excited about being part of this movement of Jesus. And you remember the Pharisees say, how dare you? And they, he call, they call Jesus out. Like, your disciples haven't been to seminary. They're just fishermen. They don't have credentials to be this prophetic witness to God. And remember what Jesus says to them? If they don't, the rocks will. And I think what that means is that the Spirit of God will use anyone and anything at any time. Can't. It will. I mean, Jesus confirms that. In John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And apart from me, you can do nothing. You, if, but if you remain in me, my word's in you, ask whatever you want, and it'll be done. I, it's going to be done. <laughs> Just rest in that. 
the Spirit will cause everything and anything to happen if we just rest in this idea that God works despite us. His plan is going to be done. And that's profoundly good news, to me at least, because God's using me. God's using you, each and every one of you. And uh, he's animating us. The pressure is off us to perform. And we're not the ones. We don't have to be the ones. You know, as I prayed over the connects, they don't have to raise their daughters. They don't, it's not on them to save that, their, their, their kids. <laughs> it's not on you to save the world. We have been saved by the cross and the work of Christ on the cross and God's saving spirit within our lives. We can just rest in that reality and move into God's call in our lives just to be a presence. And, we're, and we, can be, we can be courageous. Do you see this, the difference here? Here's the second application, though. In order to, to fulfill our calling and, and be people of the Spirit, um, you know, Ezekiel, he could not stand without the Spirit's empowerment, so he's dead on his feet. <laughs> uh, he's speechless. Yet we frequently take the liberty to pursue our callings despite the Spirit in our own strength. And this has applications on the macro and micro level. On the micro level, I, don't, I can't name the last time I sat down and prayed and asked the Spirit to speak before writing an email. That's not the space the Spirit works in, right? It's, I get that. I can do that. I can do email. Like, I can't remember the last time I'm sitting down with Elizabeth and just pausing to pray in a conversation we're having that's feeling like it's off the rails and just ask the Spirit to take over. Or with my kids. Or if I'm looking at my calendar on my phone and booking an appointment and, you know, asking the Spirit about that free space that's there. Um, who does that? And yet, <laughs> in, it's those places that make up the 99% of our callings every day. The daily grind, so to speak. The groceries, the yard work, the bills to pay. This is where we live our lives. Whether we're architects, teachers, engineers, stay-at-home parents, counselors, pastors, whatever it is, whatever we do, we're not excused from the agency of God's Spirit. And, and without the Spirit, we can do nothing. Remember what Jesus says? <laughs> and yet... Without the Spirit, I confess to you, I try and do everything, almost. You know, I think to myself, I got this. I can figure this out, you know. I've been to seminary. <laughs> I, can, I can think my, my way out of this maze. I just got to work at it a little more. I just got to spend a little more time thinking about it, praying, right? Uh, we typically approach God when we're faced with challenges in life, and then usually only when we need to. Like, we keep God in this box of a quiet time, of a Bible study, of a hour of church on a Sunday, which brings us to, to the macro level. As we fulfill our divine calling to live without fear, are we living as people who can do nothing without the agency of the Spirit? Like, for me, that's writing sermons or counseling people who are struggling or comforting the dying or equipping you for the work of ministry, you know. Perhaps for you, that's teaching the next generation. You're a teacher or you create technology, you're creative, uh, you manage people, you raise kids. Whatever you do, do, God, whatever God's gifted you for, this shines a, a really bright light on that calling and confronts you with a penetrating question. Are you relying on the agency of the Spirit of God for your, your call? Are you, every day, before your feet hit the floor, before you cross the threshold of your house, enter the world, before your first meeting of the day, before you open your inbox of your, of your email and, and see who needs me, or you open the news feed, what fires in the world do I need to put out? Like, what crises in the world are out of control do I need to respond to? I need to tweet this. I need to 
talk to this person before we make any decisions that are going to impact the lives of other people or even our own lives. Are we seeking the Spirit of God? Are we saying, do you say, Lord, I need you? Like that song, Lord, I need you. Do you confess, without you, I can do nothing today? Like, stand me on my feet, God. (laughs) So I can walk with courage that comes from you. Not courage that I can drum up and dream up, but divine courage that comes from the presence of the Spirit in my life. Is that you? I can, it's not me. So I hope, if you're with me, I want to be that kind of a person, no matter the context I'm in. We're not here on earth to erect a kingdom of our own making. We're, here on, we're citizens of heaven, children of God, agents of the Spirit. And Ezekiel reminds us of that. There's a third thing first that before we go on to uh, that we need to hear. And that's this. So without the Spirit, we can do nothing. But when the Spirit empowers us, we will stand. So Ezekiel didn't seem to have a choice in this matter. You know, the, the, God says to him, stand, and the Spirit comes in uninvited and stands him up. It's not like Ezekiel was, like, it doesn't seem like he was really looking for that. I mean, you get this picture that Ezekiel, with the other exiles in Babylon, are just is mourning and lamenting. And that's, by the way, not a bad thing. I'm not putting down. There are times in our lives where that needs to happen. We just need to move through a season of grief. That's, that's why the book of Job is so instructive to us. This slow movement through grief and loss. And there's times when that needs to happen. But God has other plans for Ezekiel. It's almost like God's spirit comes alongside Ezekiel and says, hey, I know you, y'all, are in the midst of suffering, loss, disorder, like everyone, everyone else is around you. But I'm going to ask you, Ezekiel, right in the midst of that, to do something you absolutely don't want to do. You don't, you don't want to do this. And that's become part of the agent in the solution. Everyone else is sitting down. Everyone else is weeping, and as Psalm 137 says, by the, the rivers of Babylon, I'm going to have you stand up. Everyone else is looking back at the past, wishing for the good old days. If we could just get back there, man, everything be right. I'm going to ask you to catch and cast a vision for the future. What we can and will be with God's Spirit. And so, friends, there have always been those in history who have, who have stood in the face of incredible opposition. There was Esther, just some generations after Ezekiel, who stood against the tyranny of the Persian king Xerxes, who wanted to annihilate the Jews. And she, you know, in a culture that didn't value women's voices or women, period, just exploited them. She's an exploited woman. She has the courage to stand single-handedly in front of the king and, and, and prevent a genocide. That's why we celebrate her story. Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, years later, just stood against the idols of nationalism, you know, and helped to stop the Nazis from doing it again. Rosa Parks, though she sat, she stood uh, against the evils of racial segregation, ignited a movement by just sitting on a bus. Um, St. Francis stood against the idols of religious institutions, you know, and informs kind of how the way, the way we posture our faith. Gabrielle Grunewald just stood against cancer. Not, and not just for herself, but now for others. Um, and so the, the key to this kind of living is that standing is always a supernatural thing. There's a supernatural power be, beyond you that's behind you, moving you, standing you. That's the meaning of Ephesians 5.16 where Paul says these are desperate times. We live in desperate times right now. I think if you open your news feed, it's desperate. Everybody feels desperate. Uh, there's so many desperate issues right now. 
And, and Paul says, these are desperate times. Thus, make the most of every chance you get by being filled with the Spirit. <laughs> you know, sure there's marches. Sure there's things to vote for. Sure there's issues. Make the most of those opportunities by being filled with the Spirit, by surrendering control to an outside force. So when the Spirit empowers you, you'll stand up. Will you stand up with the Spirit to racism, materialism, nationalism, consumerism, whatever the ism that is destroying the lives of people in our world? Will you step into your calling with courage uh, with the Spirit's power? Is that you? Again, I want that to be me. I, I often I have to confess it's not. But courage demands that we stand through the empowerment of the Spirit. That's number one. Here's number two. Courage requires obedience and submission to the Word of God. So uh, in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, and then the beginning of chapter 3, I'll read this again. God says, you, son of man, to Ezekiel, listen to what I have to say. Don't rebel like the rebellious people. He's talking about the Jewish people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And then Ezekiel says, I looked, I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, which was unrolled. And on both sides there were written words of lament, mourning, and woe. And then, the, and then God said to me, Son of man, eat what's before you. Eat this scroll, and then go speak to Israel. And so I opened my mouth. He gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said, Son of man, eat this scroll. I'm giving you. Fill your stomach with it. So I ate. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. So this is a pretty strange moment, right? <laughs> I mean, and there's some strange stuff before this that we didn't talk about yet. And there's some strange stuff after that we will talk about. Um, in other words, it's not enough for Ezekiel just to witness this amazing vision from God that is like wheels and chariots and all that stuff, and then try to interpret that as people have for God's people. Um, he's going to have to first ingest it, digest it, eat it, and then speak it. In other words, more than just engaging our eyes and ears, and I love that Sean talked about this last week, eyes and ears and his call to courageous living, God's inviting us to engage our taste in touch as well. This is a full-on sensory experience. And to understand why that's so important in this moment with Ezekiel, why it's so important, we ingest the call of God and sort of assimilate it as we move into it. I think it'd be helpful to really to glance briefly at another time in Scripture when the same thing happened. It happened to the Apostle John. He's writing, he's exiled in Patmos, he's writing Revelation, another equally bizarre book that none of us have read <laughs> or really taught about. It, it's just like, wow, like, that's weird. Um, in Revelation 10, if you look at it sometimes side by side with Ezekiel 2 and 3, it's nearly a word-for-word encounter that John has with God. There's angels, cherubim, chariots, voices, thunder. John's dumbstruck. This is why I love John's story. He, he has no idea what to do with this. And so he does what many of us have done. He grabs his journal <laughs> and a pencil so that he can start writing down his dream. I mean, how many of you, they're not going to believe this. Like, I don't even know if I do. Like, is this something I ate last night? You know, I got to get this down before I forget it. How many of you have had like a dream, one of those dreams you immediately wake up and you're like, wow, was that real or was that a dream? I got to write that one down so I can talk to somebody about it because my therapist is not going to believe this. You know, this is bizarre. And the key is that John's just about to start writing this down. You can just picture him with his journal and write out Revelation for us. And God says, don't, hold on, don't write, Eat. See, we want to write, and God says, eat this book. And from that point of view, there's a couple of truths I want to pull out for us in this call to courage. Courage 
always comes by way of eating God's word. Okay? Here's the first one. Uh, this whole experience indicates that Ezekiel, and John as well, has to totally absorb the word of God. Think of eating. Didn't just taste it. wasn't just in his mouth. Just roll it around like a lossage and then, you know, spit it out or whatever. It's going to fill his stomach, verse 3 of chapter 3, so that he's going to thoroughly digest it. So it's like God saying, get my word into your gut. <laughs> get the words of this book moving through your bloodstream, coursing through your veins. Chew on them, swallow them, and metabolize them. Turn them into energy and resources that are going to propel you forward in life. Make them part of you. So you know what they say, you are what you eat. <laughs> and that's true for us as physical beings. That's why there's this clean food movement these days versus eating processed foods because we, we know that processed manufactured foods are literally killing us. Um, so there's this movement back to clean foods because um, we're eating chemicals. <laughs> Who thought that was a good idea? I don't know. It's also true for us as communities and societies as we develop and preserve identities. Like food, uh, there's a BOA professor named Eric Dursler who says that food is an unmistakably unique, potent, and potent means of manufacturing and preserving identity. Food. I mean, the foods we eat, recipes we hand down over generations in time, are deeply tied to the preservation of our cultures and our stories. Uh, this was particularly true in, in my, uh, my and Elizabeth's wedding, like almost 20 years ago, and in particular our wedding cake, which was this Norwegian krensakaka. And some of the Norwegians in the room are smiling. If you don't know what krensakaka is, that's okay. It's not that... Uh, I didn't like it, but it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's not like... We had a cake last night at Silas's, uh, Abby's graduation party. That was good, but this was like, I don't know, need some good coffee with it. But um, I'm sorry, Elizabeth. Anyway, so it's a series, of, if you can look it up on YouTube or Instagram, but it's a series of these um, concentric circles that are stacked on top of each other that are made of almond, sugar, and egg whites, and, and then they're layered, and it's, you know, 18 layers, and it's really beautiful, right? So we had this at our wedding. That was our wedding cake. Because Elizabeth's mom immigrated from Norway in her 20s, and she, you know, has lived her entire life since, but she has all this family back in Norway. And, uh, and so this culture runs deep through her family. I mean, her mom still has an accent, like 46 years later, you know? And uh, in fact, her aunts and uncles, one of them named Valdemar, like, that's cool. <laughs> Valdemar was at our wedding. So they came, they came to our wedding, but they came like a week earlier, and they sat around the dining room table, and they made this krentakaka cake for like a week. They made it, they built it, and I remember them sitting around... Um, telling stories and laughing, and sometimes in Norwegian, sometimes in English, and, and looking at old pictures and all those things, building for us which is what is now one of the most amazing memories of our lives. Like, if we just bought a cake, and some of you did, so it's okay, at Costco, like, that's not happening, right? It's preserving... I'm not even Norwegian. I mean, I think I might be a shipwreck Norwegian. I'm Scottish, but um, the point here is that God's Word was to become part of... Thank you for getting that joke. God's word was supposed to become part of Ezekiel, his story, a means of informing his identity. And uh, not just this objective spoken word from a pulpit in a sermon off of an iPad from the top of a mountain, like God spoke, I'm going to speak, and, you know, just flatten out on a page, but part of Ezekiel. He's now the scroll, so to speak. It's become him because we are what we eat. God's word was given to him to, to form him, not just inform him. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference for us. Um, I love how Eugene Peterson kind of offers a winsome insight on this. He says, I have a granddaughter who eats books. Some of you do too. You have kids. 
when I'm reading a story to her brother, she picks up, you know, she picks another off the stack and just chews on it. It's like she's trying to get that book inside of her in the quickest way she knows, not through her ears, but through her mouth. She doesn't make these fine distinctions that we do as adults between ear and mouth. Any opening will do to get it in her. (laughs) But soon, here's the indicting word, soon she'll go to school and be taught that's not the way you do it. She'll be taught to get the answers from the book by reading, learning to read the books in order to pass examinations, and having passed the examinations, put the book back on the shelf so she can get another one off. That's an indicting word, because we do that with God's word. <laughs> uh, are we reading or eating God's word for our lives? Are we trying to pass an exam? You know, are we trying to be formed by it? It's not a means to an end. This is not a means to an end. Your quiet time, your Bible study is not a means to an end. It's a way of God forming your identity. Eat this book. Take it all in. Assimilate that truth so you become it. Um, you, and, and, and Ezekiel's story reminds us we must let God's tran- work, word do transforming work in us before it will be of any good to anyone out, you know, through us. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Ezekiel seems to observe this paradox between, in doing that. Like between the word he eats, which is lamentation, mourning, and woe, verse, two, or verse 10 of chapter 2, and then as he rolls it around in his mouth as sweet as honey, and then later, if you read on, he's sitting in bitterness, anger, and deep distress. So here's the deal. There's an inherent paradox or contrast that Ezekiel experiences as he encounters the word of God that illustrates something fundamental about our experience. And here's what it is. For most of us, our first experience, maybe it's your present experience with the Bible, is so sweet. Like we, we find ourselves in the book, and that's so wonderful. We acquire a taste for the promises and the blessings. Like we love Psalm 23, Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, Revelation 21, comfort. We, we memorize Psalms when we were kids to, mem- to recite. I remember doing this when I was a kid. Recite in the dark and lonely times so we can find comfort. And those, that's good, right? I'm not putting that down. But sooner or later, we find that not everything in the Bible is to our liking. You know, Lamentations is right there on Ezekiel. You decided to read the Bible through in a year, and you got to Leviticus, and you quit. Revelation, I made a joke about it, but none of us like that. You know, judgment, fire, wrath. It just, the, the word of God starts to bug you when, you when it gets inside of you. All this talk of sin, all that violence, all this judgment, you know, it starts out sweet, but we find that it's not sitting so well with us. It's like we have a stomachache. <laughs> we need some Pepto-Bismol. As Smart Coleridge once says, the Bible is no easy read. It's not an easy read if you've ever chosen to read it. There are hard things in the Bible. There are hard words in this book that we're going to read this summer. Hard things to hear, hard things to obey, hard things to stomach. That's why Ezekiel seems to have a really bad case of indigestion. So I think it's fairly accurate I think a fairly accurate comparison as we head into the summer between the Bible uh, and our experience is like the state fair. How many of you will go to Monroe or Puyallup this summer and, yeah, eat the elephant ears and go see Garth Brooks? Like, many of us are going to go there. Yeah, we love it. I think crowded state fairs are a really great metaphor for the Word of God, like carnival rides, sideshows, children's clutching their allowance money, farm animals, deafening car races, Uh, blood-curdling country music, greasy food, men and women from every walk of life, those places are charged with humanity, human and animal life alike, greedy and generous, 
And if you, here's the deal. If you're truly going to enjoy the state fair, especially as a city folk, you know, we're so refined, right? You, you cannot enjoy that if you just try and control it. If you just control all, you're going to go to Monroe or you're going to go to Puyallup and be like, no, we're not going to have any fried pickles. We're going to have like, you know, food trucks. We're going to, you know, we're not going to have country music. We're going to have bluegrass. You know, we're going to control all the circumstances. A fairground has to be entered open-handedly. You get what you get. You don't throw a fit. <laughs> and uh, if you're going to really experience it and just enjoy it. And the Bible is, is so much more like that than anything else. It's a story that must be entered more than understood and controlled. You cannot control it. You cannot oftentimes understand it. You might not like it that much, but if you, want, if you really want to be a part of it, you have to just enter it. Just go. Get your ticket, walk in, and just start experiencing. It's a lived reality. A reality that's sometimes unpleasant, like Garth Brooks and fried pickles, but that's what we got. That's what we got. And in God's kind of divine sense of humor, that's what he chose to give us. Are you open to entering the word of God? Like, read Ezekiel this summer. It'll, it'll mess you up. I had to read, like Richard told us we got to read it before we preach it, so I did. I'm like, man, this is messed up. I don't want to do this. We'll go back to the Gospels. That was more fun. Like, in all of its richness and confusion, confusing complexity, uh, but it will inform your calling as well. Just enter it. It'll fill you with courage. It will. So are you, are you allowing the Word of God to read you? Are you just reading it? Are you, how do you tend to approach the Word of God when it gets hard, hard to understand, hard to stomach? Do you, like me, kind of sand off the rough edges, you know, until it's like a round peg that can fit in your round peg, you know? Ezekiel's call confronts us with this question. Are we, might, are we trying to understand God's word or just enter it? So that's the second thing. Okay? Are you allowing the word of God to read to you? Uh, here's the last thing. Courage demands that we have this posture of solidarity um, and empathy with the people of God. So how we read the word of God is, has enormous implications on our direction and our call in life and the degree of courage we can live with having a posture of solidarity and empathy with the people of God does as well. And this is a very interesting moment. At the end of chapter 3, Ezekiel's eating the book, and then, like I said, the Spirit lifts him up and then places him amongst the exiles. Again, before his sermon preaching kind of starts, he's there for about a week just being present. I'll read those verses. The Spirit lifted me up, took me away. I went away in bitterness and anger in my spirit. I mean, because he's really, like, ingested this stuff, and this is not going to be easy to do. And then I came to the exiles, the strong hand of the Lord on me, who lived in Tel Aviv near the Kibar River. And there, where they were living, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. So Ezekiel sat. He didn't preach. His proclamation of God's word flows out of a personal experience of suffering with God's people. Do you hear that? His, His proclamation of God's word, the hope, the power, the call to holiness, the grace. I mean, there's, if you read Ezekiel, there's grace and there's so much. The whole gospel is here. It flows out of a personal experience of his suffering with God's people. So God has called him to simply be still beside the Kibar River in order to experience what the exiles are first experiencing. Their loss, their grief, their confusion, their pain. And this is nothing short of the incarnation right here in the Old Testament. So it's like prior to Christ, we've got Ezekiel. Before he's going to say anything about what's happening, and he's going to say much, we're going to get to it. 
before he does anything and, and kind of proclaims the promises of God about restoration, he's just going to sit with them. As a way of just entering into this experience that none of them can yet understand or is ready to put words to yet. I mean, Hebrews talks about this with Jesus, that we have a God who chose a posture of, of living with us in order to understand our experience. That's what informed his death, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of the lived human experience. And that's such an important thing. It develops courage within us. Um, some of you know I, I like Henry Nouwen, and so I quote him all the time. But I have this like, little tag in this book that I go back to. It's, this book is called Reaching Out, and its subtitle is Three Movements of the Spiritual Life. That was a totally unhelpful subtitle. Anyway, um, <laughs> I thought it was going to be important. But uh, he tells a story in here about a day. He used to be a professor at like Harvard, Notre Dame, and uh, before he went to Larsh, which is a community he lived with before he died, till he died. And this day when this student of his came back, kind of, you can kind of picture, you know, summer vacation. He's there kind of grading or whatever, or teaching a summer school class. And the student comes back and uh, enters his room and says this, Hey, Professor and I have no problems this time, no questions to ask. I don't need counsel. I don't need advice. I simply want to celebrate some time with you. And so now it says, we sat on the ground facing each other and talked a little bit, a while about what life had been like this last year, our work, our common friends, the restlessness of our hearts. goes on to say that the slow the minutes passed between became hours, not an embarrassing silence, but a silence that could bring us closer together than the many big and small events of the last year. We'd hear, we'd hear a few cars pass, maybe a baby cry, <laughs> uh, emptying of a trash can somewhere, but it didn't hurt that silence. It, the silence, he says, that grew between us was warm, gentle, vibrant. And once in a while, he says, we look at each other with the beginning of a smile and just push it away because we were a little scared. And then he goes on to say, it seemed that while that silence, grew, uh, silence went on, uh, there grew between us uh, an awareness of a presence embracing us. And so the student said to him, it's, it's good to be here, Dr. Nowen. And Nowen said, yes, it's good to be together. And after we were there silent again for a long period, as this peace filled that space, he, the student, said, think of this. <laughs> this is the student speaking to the teacher. He said hesitantly, when I look at you, it's as if I'm looking at the presence of Christ. And Nowen says, I didn't feel startled, surprised, or need a protesting. I could only say, yes, it's the Christ in you who recognizes the Christ in me. It's the Christ in you, recognizing the Christ in me. And that's the call we've been given through Ezekiel that develops courage within us. It's the people with whom we have primary, intimate, intense relationships that now and suggest are the, the very vehicles of the divine presence. The people we meet, the people we snub, the people we sometimes ignore, we take for granted, some of them great in the eyes of the world, some of them almost invisible, that are the conduits of God's grace, vehicles of courage. Uh, courage is a team sport. It's a team sport. You don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You develop it with others in community. That's why we gather on Sundays. One of the ways the Spirit guides and shapes our lives is through those who we find in our path. We don't choose each other. We're chosen by God, thrown into these communities. And when we receive those places in our lives as gifts from God, they become these living signposts pointing us toward the kingdom of God, our calling, new directions, hope, courage. That's what this is all about. And they plant seeds in our lives. 
Not a failure, but a future. And so the invitation as we conclude, and I'll invite our worship leaders back up here now, is this. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to the people that God has put in your life? Christ in you, recognizing the Christ in them. You know, you're by the Kibar River. Put yourself in Ezekiel. You're experiencing the, the destruction of your shared Jerusalem, death of dreams, loss of hope, loss of a loved one. Struggle to keep faith in a world that's full of lies. Are you paying attention? That's, that's all you got to do. Pay attention. Like, might God be inviting you to the Kibar River of another person just to enter like Ezekiel did into the suffering and the grief and the loss and the confusion of somebody in your life in our community? Not explaining, not preaching, not trying to make sense of the situation, just being Christ's presence. The Word became flesh and blood, and what? Moved into the neighborhood. Just moved in. Just moved next door. Just started living life. And now we're told through Scripture that that Word is living not just with us, as Sean so poignantly preached last week, but in us and through us. You know, the Spirit of Christ is in us. God has given us the capacity because of Christ's Spirit in us to sit with others and be the presence of Christ with others. So who is it that God's placed in your life? That's the question that God's calling you to sit with. It might be your spouse. Think of this for a moment for those of you that have spouses as they're facing these overwhelming odds, challenges, anxiety, disease, loss of hope. You have it, I hope, I hope you do, friends, like seven, eight hours a day to be present with your spouse, just laying there silent. What a great opportunity. Just to be silent together. Think of the opportunity in that. I know I, I, you know, I'm the worst amongst you. I just want to, just leave me alone. Don't touch. I don't, you know, my little cocoon. How often have I missed the opportunity just to be the presence of Christ in that space? What a gift. With your children, not trying to control them, not trying to get them to behave and do, but just be with them. That's the gift. It might be with a total stranger. Some of you see these strangers walk in the streets and they, they just bug something deep within you. There's an unrest in you. You're not sure what that's about. That might be the Spirit. Just saying, hey, would you be present? Because Christ is in you. The hope of glory, this person has Christ in them, and those Christs need to meet. Would we be open enough to the people in our lives just to sit among each other and allow the Spirit of God to minister to us? So I'm going to just invite us to that. For a couple of moments, as Andrew plays here before we begin to sing, to do two, one of two things here. Maybe your hands can be up and eyes closed, but uh, you're probably thinking of people. Could be, again, strangers. Might be people with names and faces you know. Might we take a moment to be, just express gratitude to the Lord for those in our lives. This is Father's Day. It's an opportunity. This might be your moment for your dad. You might have words for him. But you're here, (laughs) so he was present. Could you thank God for him? Or you might have a name and somebody you you know you need to move forward to, toward. Christ has put his presence in you. He's standing you up. Don't worry about it. Move. Could be at work, could be in your neighborhood. So would God give you that 
that courage and faith to move this week. And so you could spend some time praying around that situation and that opportunity this coming week. Let's take a moment just to be quiet around that, and I'll pray for us as we do. God, thank you so much for the beginning of this, uh, this new study and this new season of life. As our kids, uh, many of us who have kids are getting ready to wrap up their school year, and we get ready for vacations and Thanks for the opportunities that are within that season to experience you in new ways. Guys, we move out into it. We just want to pause for these moments. Thank you for the people in our lives who've been your presence to us. And God, we want to we want to wander together in silence around those names who've laid on our hearts and how we might be Christ in the relationships you've given us. So We take some time now, God, to allow your spirit to do its work.